morning. Genesis 1, 31 to 2, 3. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Exodus 40, 33-35 And Moses erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Leviticus 1, 1 and twenty twenty six. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. The word of the Lord. Well, this church started three years ago, and every fall, we've been working our way through the first five books of the Bible. If you want to understand the Bible, if you want to understand who God is, who Jesus is, what kind of world are we living in, what's God up to in this world, then we have to understand the first five books of the Bible. They're foundational. Uh, This fall, we arrive at the third book, Leviticus. And if you've ever tried to read the Bible through from cover to cover, you know what I'm about to say. The book of Leviticus, it's kind of like in the Boston Marathon. About 20 miles in, there's a very steep, difficult, infamous hill named Heartbreak Hill. And the reason it's called Heartbreak Hill is because it's so steep and difficult, that's where many runners just break down and fall apart and can't finish the race. Leviticus is kind of like the heartbreak hill of the Bible. It's, it's where Bible reading plans break down and fall apart. <laughs> and the reason is because it's just a weird book. We've got all these weird, bloody rituals and sacrifices. It's got all kinds of weird rules and regulations about things like skin diseases and bodily discharges. Um, So much so that when people who are skeptical about the Bible want to kind of show how primitive and irrelevant and silly the Bible is, a lot of times they'll quote Leviticus. Like Leviticus 11, you shall not eat shellfish. You know, like what's wrong with shrimp? Or or Leviticus 19, you shall not wear any garment of mixed material. Like, okay, I got to throw away my polyester blends now. Like what's going on? But on the other hand, you know, the Bible has a lot to say it to us about areas that do feel very relevant and important for us today. You know, for instance, things like immigration. You know, there's a place in the Bible that says, when a stranger comes into your land, you shall do them no wrong. You shall love the stranger. You know where that's from? Leviticus. Or have you ever heard people say, you should love your neighbor as yourself? We think that's pretty relevant for today, don't we? That's from Leviticus. So on the one hand, yeah, it's a weird book, but on the other hand, 
it's got some things that feel pretty important for us today. This morning, I want to invite you, let's enter the weird. Because if we do, we're going to find out that this book really does have some things that are very important, very relevant, very meaningful to show us. This morning, we're just looking at the first verse. Um, You know what the first verse in Leviticus teaches us? Let me ask you a question. What would you say is the main problem with the whole world? What is the number one biggest problem in the whole world? What would you say it is? For instance, back in June, the very first Democratic debate they had, they asked the candidates, hey, um, if you were going to focus on just one issue, one big problem that you would say, this is what I'm going to work on, what would you say? Is it immigration? Or is it climate change? Or gun violence? Or poverty? Or health care? How would you answer that question? What is the biggest problem in the world? Leviticus says all of those things are important, but they're just symptoms of a much bigger, much deeper problem. And that's not to say that that those things aren't important or that we shouldn't do something about those things. In fact, as we go throughout Leviticus, we're going to find out it actually has quite a bit to say to us about immigration and violence and caring for the land and our relationships with our neighbors, um, all those things. But none of those things is the main problem. What is? The, The very first verse of Leviticus tells us, the Lord spoke to Moses from the tent. The biggest problem in the world, it's all wrapped up in this question of the tent. What in the world does that mean? Let's find out by walking through this in three steps, okay? We're going to see the story of the tent. We're going to learn the problem of the tent. And lastly, we're going to see the purpose of the tent, okay? The story, the problem, and finally, the purpose of the tent, okay? So first, the story of the tent. Um, Are you up for learning a little Hebrew this morning? Yes. Okay. The very first words in the book of Leviticus are Vayikra. Can you all say that? Vayikra. That means, and he called. And the Lord called to Moses from the tent. So, so whatever's happening here is all about this tent. So what's going on is we're being dropped down into the middle of a story that's already going on. It's kind of like, you know, if you watch one of the Marvel movies or one of the Star Wars movies, it's really hard to understand what's going on if you haven't seen the first movies, right? The same thing is happening here at the beginning of Leviticus. This is a story that's already been going on. So the the book before this is Exodus, and it tells us about the tent. In fact, I wanted you to see this, so we printed the very last verses from the book of Exodus in your bulletin. In, In Exodus chapter 40, verse 33 says... And Moses erected the court around the tabernacle. Tabernacle is just another word for the tent. Tent and tabernacle, it's the same thing. And and he set up the screen of the gate of the court, so Moses finished the work. Now, do you see where it says Moses finished the work? Those words, finished the work, they're like a hyperlink. You know how when you're reading something online and you come to a word or a phrase that's highlighted... And then you click on that, and it opens up another web page that takes you to something else that's related to those words. A hyperlink says, this is related to something else. Click on the link in order to learn more. When it says, Moses finished the work, that's a hyperlink back to Genesis chapter 2, which tells us the end of the story of how God created the whole world. So, When you look at that, and we printed that in your bulletin because it's so important to see this, Genesis 
2, verses 1 and 2 say, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God, what? Finished his work. This tent is somehow related to the creation of the whole world. How? In the beginning, it says, God created the heavens and the earth, and he, and he made a garden called Eden. And in that garden, he put the first human beings as a dwelling place for people. But it wasn't just a dwelling place for people. This is one of the most important things we could possibly understand about the whole Bible. The garden was not just a dwelling place for people. It was a dwelling place for God. God wanted to dwell with people. He wanted to be in relationship with people. Yes, the whole world was created to be his dwelling place, but the garden... The garden was this special place of of connection with God, of intimacy with God. And I'll tell you what, every single one of us needs that. Even if you're not sure what you believe about God or Jesus or the Bible, we're created for that. Every single one of us longs for this connection, this intimacy with God. The problem is, as you read through Genesis 3, um, the very first humans rejected God. They rebelled against him. And they basically said, God, we don't trust you. We want to be in control of our own lives. We don't want you to be Lord over our lives. We want to be the Lord of our own lives. And as a result of that, um, not only um, does every single human being experience a longing for God, every single human being also experiences the absence of God alienation from God, a feeling that we are now in exile, that we're cut off from God. So, um, and like I said, you may not even be sure whether or not you believe in God, but haven't you ever felt like a fish out of water in this world? Haven't you ever felt like, you know, there's, I feel like there's something missing in life, and, but no matter what I try, nothing seems to satisfy, whether it's food or money or sex or gaming or shopping or drinking or drugging or success or achievements or social media or any other number of things, no matter what we turn to to fill that emptiness, nothing really seems to satisfy. The reason is because we're alienated from God. We're cut off from God. We're now in exile in this world. Um, We're cut off from the very thing that we were created for. So no one really describes this any better than the great C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer. In his essay, The Weight of Glory, he describes this experience like this. He says, the sense that in this universe, we are treated as strangers. Haven't you ever felt like that? That the universe treats us as strangers? The longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality, it's part of our inconsolable secret. Our deepest desire is acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, welcome into the heart of things. It's the desire that that the door on which we've been knocking all our lives would open at last. Haven't you ever felt like that? This emptiness, this void that nothing else in this world seems to be able to to satisfy. And listen, it's not just Christians that notice this or experience this. Um, Woody Allen is not only a very famous filmmaker, he's also a very noted atheist. Uh, He made a film back in 2010 called Midnight in Paris. And uh, it's all about a writer named Gill, a very 21st century guy who goes to Paris 
But while he's there, Gill just keeps fantasizing about how really the golden time was back in the 1920s in Paris. That's when writers like Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald were there. And he feels like if only he could get back to that time, that was the golden time. If he could get back then, he would really be living. And amazingly enough, in the movie, he gets his wish. And so every night at midnight, midnight in Paris, he magically gets transported back to Paris of the 1920s. And it's amazing. He meets all these famous writers. He feels like he's finally living. But while he's there, he meets a young woman named Adriana. And for Adriana, um, the 1920s aren't the golden time. For her, the golden time was back in the 1890s, the time of horse-drawn carriages and Toulouse-Lautrec and the Moulin Rouge and, and all that romantic stuff. And, and, and so amazingly enough, as the movie goes along, they get transported back to the 1890s. Um, and when Adriana gets there, now it's her turn to be the one who feels like she's finally living because now she feels like she's finally gone back to the golden time. But Gil can't understand it. He's like, you already lived in the golden time. Why would you want to go back to some other time? And she says, are you kidding? What are you talking about? It's the present. It's dull. And as she's talking, Gil... It, he finally starts to realize what's going on. He feels alienated in his present time, so he wants to go back to some other time. But when he goes back there, the people in that time feel alienated from the present, so they want to go back to some other time. And, and when they get there, the people that live in that time, they want to go back to some other time. Everybody's unhappy. Everybody's unsatisfied. <laughs> And as this realization creeps over him, he turns to Adriana and he says, Adriana, if you stay here and this becomes your present, then pretty soon you're going to start imagining that some other time was really the golden time because that's what the present is. It's unsatisfying because life is unsatisfying. Now listen, if Woody Allen and C.S. Lewis and the Bible all agree on something... Chances are it's true. We were created to dwell in the presence of God. And the story of the Bible is all about God's persistent desire to dwell with us. The problem is we're now alienated from God. We're cut off from God. And, and that's what this whole story is about. That, that we lost the presence of God, and as a result, the whole world is falling apart. So, you know, you've got war and violence and racism and poverty. Where do you think those things come from? Immigration, climate change, all the problems we have in our world. Where do those things come from? The farther away we get from God, the more the world falls apart. And so the whole narrative, as you work your way through the first five books of the Bible, you see this so that by the time you get to the book of Exodus, you've got the Israelites, they're in slavery, they're politically and economically exploited. They're living in a world where evil and oppression seem to rule the day, where the rich are always getting richer and the poor are always getting poorer. And you read that and all of a sudden you're starting to think, hmm, maybe the Bible has something to say to us after all. The story of the Bible, the story of Leviticus is all about what is God doing about that? 
How is God answering this problem? How is God answering this, this problem in the world? In, in the Bible, what you see is God moves into this story with the, as the Israelites are in slavery. He rescues them, and then he says, through you, I want to reestablish my presence in this world. Build me a tent. The tent is the place where God is reestablishing his presence in the world. The tent, if you will, it's kind of like the Garden of Eden 2.0. The tent is God's answer to everything that's wrong with the world. It's his way of saying, I want to be with you. I want to dwell with you. I want to heal you. And I want to heal the world. This is how I'm going to do it. And that leads to our second point. We've just been introduced to the story of the tent. But secondly, we need to see the problem of the tent. Because when you read the end of Exodus, as we just did, you know, when Moses finished the work, If you look, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So on the one hand, this is great. They build the tent, and here comes God. He's in the tent. He's dwelling on earth again. But on the other hand, Moses is outside with everybody else. And that is where the book of Leviticus begins. Verse number one, and the Lord called to Moses from the tent. Here's the problem. God is in the tent. Everybody else is outside. And yet the whole story of Leviticus is all about this. The very end of the passage we printed for you, God keeps telling the people he wants them to be holy as he is holy. So at the end it says, you shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy. You know what the the whole book of Leviticus is all about? It's all about one huge question. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people? That's what the whole book of Leviticus is all about. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people? Which means that the only way we're going to understand this book, and really the whole Bible, is if we understand what it means to say that God is holy. What is holy? Are you ready for another Hebrew word? The Hebrew word for holy is kadosh. Can we say that? Kadosh. Kadosh, holy, basically means to be set apart, to be distinct, to be set apart for special purpose. It's to say that God is radically unique. He's radically distinct. He's radically different from anything and everything else. So, for instance, all throughout the Bible, you see it talks about this, but, but in the prophet Isaiah, over and over again, God keeps saying things like, there is no God like me. There is none besides me. There is no God like me. Over and over again, God is radically unique, radically distinct. But, but one of the other big components of what it means to be holy is that God is radically pure, radically righteous and good, radically perfect, okay? So you see examples in the Bible like Revelation 15, verse 4, which says, you alone are holy, Your righteous acts have been revealed. Radical purity and goodness. Or in the book of Leviticus, we're going to see over and over again, God keeps telling the Israelites, you shall be holy because I am holy. But when Jesus is talking to his disciples, Matthew chapter 5, he's riffing on the book of Leviticus, and he says, you should be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Holiness means radically unique, but also radically pure. It means radically different, but also radically attractive. It means radically alien, 
but also radically beautiful. That's what it means to be holy. And here's what all of this means for us. In the beginning of creation, there was a time when every human being was able to safely dwell in the presence of God. Because as I mentioned earlier in the service, Genesis 1 tells us every human being is created in the image of God. That means we're like a mirror that, that reflects back to God his beauty and his goodness. Now, a mirror is not the source of the beauty and the goodness, but a perfect mirror will be a perfect reflection of the beauty and the goodness. That's what we were created to be. But as we noticed earlier, because of our rejection of God, because we rebelled against God and basically said, God, we don't trust you, we want to be in control of our lives. Because of that, every single one of us is now alienated from God. We're, we're relationally cut off from God, and we're responsible for it. So, for instance, I mean, you know what this is like. Have you ever had a relationship with somebody and something happens, some kind of breakdown, something goes off the rails a little bit, and, and you know how this happens a lot of times. You might still be able to hang around that person, but it's fake. Why is that? It's because you never really dealt with what happened. The, the Bible says that is the exact situation that we're in with God. We're alienated from him. We're, we're relationally cut off from God, and, and, and unless that relationship gets dealt with, there's no way for us really to be in the presence of God. And I know that for some people, you know, that might sound a little harsh or extreme. Like, what do you mean? Like, I'm okay with God. But think about it. Rem remember that emptiness that we were talking about. You know, don't you ever experience that, even just once in a while? I know in our culture, you know, we don't, it's not really acceptable to show fear or weakness or vulnerability, but every once in a while, doesn't that emptiness hit you? Don't you ever experience that? It's because we're alienated from God. It's because we're cut off from God. Um, and yeah, that's sad. Yeah, it's tragic. But friends, it's also rejection of God. The Bible calls that sin. We rejected him, and our relationship with God is now alienated. We're cut off from God. So that, so that as we move through life, one of the things we experience is this intense emptiness, this sadness, this longing in our life that we feel cut off from something we were created for. And that means, by the way, that on the outside, it's possible for our lives to look really good. For us to just say, well, what do you mean I'm alienated from God? I'm a good person. I'm a successful person, but on the inside, a relationship with God is a mess. It's fake. Because what we're doing, if we say that, is we're looking to our goodness or our success in order to deal with the emptiness instead of attending to our relationship with God. We're alienated from him. The relationship is broken. And as a result of that, none of us is really able to dwell in the presence of God and survive that. And you see that all throughout the Bible. So there's a place in Exodus where God is on the Mount Sinai with, with God. And Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God says, Moses, I can't show you my glory. No human being can see my glory and live. It would kill you on the spot. Or um, in Isaiah, in the prophet Isaiah, he has a vision of the glory of God in the temple. And the angels are crying out, kadosh, 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 holy, holy, holy. And, and you think, oh, wonderful. Isaiah's in the presence of God. No. He's terrified. He says, woe is me, I am undone. And you know, by the way, this is not just an Old Testament angry God kind of thing. 
In the New Testament, in the, in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, there's um, a couple of times where the apostle Peter, one of Jesus' followers, there, there are a couple of times when he gets just a glimpse, the veil is peeled back just a bit, and he's able to see the, the holiness of Jesus, the, the incomparable glory and majesty of who Jesus really is. And when that happens, Peter says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. We can't dwell in the presence of a holy God and survive. It would kill us. It's, to, to, to come into the presence of God's holiness is, is like coming into the presence. It's like getting too close to the sun. You know, if you share the same nature as the sun, hey, you'll be fine. But if you don't, it would incinerate you. It's lethal. The idea that we could just come waltzing into the presence of this holy God only shows that we have no idea just who this God really is and just how holy this God really is, which means that the problem of the tent and therefore the whole project, God's whole project in the book of Leviticus is how can God welcome people back into his presence? Because that's what he wants. How can, an, how can a, a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people. And that leads to our last point. We've seen the story of the tent. We were created for a relationship with God. God wants to dwell in the world. We're alienated from him. His solution to that problem is the tent. But the, but the problem of the tent is that God can't just simply welcome us, back, welcome us back into his presence without dealing with this relational cutoff we've experienced. So that leads to our last point, the purpose of the tent. What is the purpose of the tent? Because if we go back to the beginning, remember what we said, what is the tent? The tent is the place of God's dwelling. But, and we're going to see this as we go throughout the book of Leviticus, the only way the tent can be the place of God's dwelling is if it's also the place of sacrifice. And I understand as soon as I say that, that in our modern, enlightened, um, cultivated age, uh, very few things are more offensive and confusing and, and, and feel more barbaric and primitive to us than this idea of blood sacrifice. And beginning next week, um, we are going to do a deep dive into this idea of sacrifice. But even this week, if you struggle with the idea that, that God would, would require sacrifice in order to be in relationship with him, then I want to encourage you to keep just a couple of things in mind. And the first is this. This idea of substitutionary sacrifice, it's the idea that, that somebody would give their life to save others. That idea is still by far one of the most common and most powerful plot devices in all of the greatest stories, all of the most famous books, all of the, the, you know, the Bafo box office movie hits. They're all about this. Think about it. I just mentioned the Marvel movies or the Star Wars movies. The hero gives their life to save others. Or if you think about Titanic, Jack dies to save Rose. Or, or Harry Potter, or even Stranger Things more recently. There is nothing more life-changing, more powerful than, than seeing somebody give their life to save others. But the second thing is this. The, the thing that's so unique about this God, um, this story of Leviticus, the Bible shows us a God who instead of demanding that we provide the sacrifice ourselves, this is a God who provides it for us. Because as I mentioned, Leviticus, it's the story of the tent. But friends, Leviticus is just one chapter in an ongoing story of the tent. Where does the story go from here? If you'll remember, just a bit ago, I mentioned that 
that this word tabernacle is, um, is in just another word to refer to the tent, the place of God's dwelling. Now, um, that word tabernacle, are you ready for one more Hebrew word? It's the word mishkan. Can we say that? Mishkan. That, that means that the place of God's dwelling, the tent, the tabernacle. Mishkan, when later rabbis wanted to talk about the glory cloud of God that dwelt in the tent, and later on the temple in Jerusalem, which is just another chapter in the story of the tent, when they wanted to talk about that glory cloud presence of God, they would use a variation of that word mishkan. It's the word shekinah. You see, mishkan, shekinah, shekinah. The shekinah is the glory cloud presence of God. It's, it's, the, it's the holiness, the holy presence of God that's so radically unique and so radically pure that no human being can survive its presence. So the tent, the tabernacle, is the mishkan, dwelling place of God, where, where the, the Shekinah glory of God dwells in this world. That's what the mishkan is. Um, friends, you and I, we're looking for that, every single one of us. Like I said, you may not know exactly what you believe about God or the Bible or Jesus, but every single one of us, we're looking for a way back in, back into the presence of God. That's Every single one of us longs for that. And the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it shows us a God, the only God, because remember, there is no God like this God. The only God that instead of demanding that we provide the sacrifice, this is a God that provides the sacrifice himself. How? Vayikra. And he called. What does that mean? The gospel shows us a God who, instead of waiting for us to call out to him, he calls out to us. Instead of waiting for us to come seeking after him, this is a God who comes seeking after his. Vayikra. That's what God does. And that is the, the, the exact opposite of traditional religion. This is a, a, a gospel that shows you a God who takes the initiative. In, in every other religion, religion, in traditional religion, it's all about you taking the initiative. You have to be a good person. You have to live a good life. You have to live a holy life. You have to perform all kinds of sacrifices in order to find a way back in. The glory, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is it shows us a God who's already done everything necessary in order to make a way back in. Because this chapter in the story of the tent, Leviticus, is a story that's going somewhere, a story that has its climax in the appearance of Jesus Christ in history. So if you go forward to the gospel of John at the very beginning, it tells us that Jesus Christ is the God who created the whole universe, He's the true holy one. He's the true glorious one. And, and, um, and not only that, as you go through the gospel of John, it tells us that, that the word, that's Jesus, says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now that's how our modern translations put it. But older versions would translate it like this. They'd say the, the word of God, Jesus, became flesh and tabernacled among us. And that's exactly right. It's, that's, it's the same word. It's saying that the Shekinah glory of God became human flesh and mishkaned with us, dwelt with us, tabernacled with us. And he goes even farther than that. A little bit later, John goes immediately on to say that we have seen the glory of God in Jesus. How can that be? We just saw God said to Moses, Moses, no one can see my glory and live. How is it possible that we could see the glory of God and survive 
The only way is because on the cross, Jesus Christ lost the glory of God and didn't survive. Friends, God is constantly calling out to us. And yet, in our desire to want to be in control of our own lives, in our insistence that, um, that we don't want God to be Lord of our lives, we, we insist on, on having control and, and filling our lives with all kinds of things, anything other than God, in order to deal with that emptiness. God keeps calling out to us, and yet we keep giving him a cold shoulder. We turn our face away and give him no answer. But on the cross, Jesus Christ called out to God, but he got no answer. Jesus Christ lost the presence of God, the holy presence of God, so that you and I could dwell in the presence of God forever. Because don't you know who Jesus is? He's the tent. He is the Mishkan. He is both the dwelling place of God on earth and he's the sacrifice that makes it possible. You know what, what the whole story is? The story in a nutshell, here it is. We're trying to find a way in. Jesus died to provide a way in. That's the whole story. We're trying to find a way in. Jesus died to provide a way in. Now, what does that mean for our lives as we walk through reality on a daily basis? Come back next week. We're going to keep talking as we go through this book about what it means to live in light of this reality. But this week as we close, let me just offer you a question and an encouragement. And the question is this. You know, at the very end of our passage, we, we printed it for you. God says to his people, you shall be holy to me for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. In other words, this is saying not only is God set apart as holy, he wants to set apart his people as holy for his purposes. Here's the question. Are you willing to be set apart for God's purposes? In other words, are you willing to let go of how you think your life needs to go? Willing to let go of what you think your life needs to look like? Even willing to let go of, of, of your desperate craving need for all those things you think you need to fill the emptiness and maybe allow God to give you what you need? Are you willing for God to set you apart for his purposes to be holy? Are you ready for that? Are you willing for that? That's the question. The encouragement is this. When we look at this story, what we see is a God who came to an exploited used, abused, former group of slaves and said, I want to set you apart for my purposes. I want to free you. But the story of their liberation, God did not set them free just for their own sake. Now go and be free and live however you want. We No. God set them free for the sake of the whole world. He said, I want you to be a holy people. As I am holy, you should be holy. In other words, God took this used and abused group of people, taught them a new way to live, and said, now I want you to live that way in the eyes of the rest of the world so that the rest of the world would be able to see what it looks like to live a new life in the presence of God. Do you know what it means to be a holy people? It means to be radically unique, different. Sometimes maybe even a little weird in the world's eyes. First Peter um, talks about this. Peter's talking about God's people, and, and he, he kind of quotes back into the Old Testament story, and he's quoting Exodus, where God says, um, you are my chosen people. And Peter, the older translations, I love the way that he translates, he says, you are a peculiar people. Are you willing to be peculiar in the world? That when the world looks at the church, they'd say, well, there's something different about those people. They don't do things like sex, money, and power the way the rest of us do. Are we willing to be a little weird? But also, are we ready to be 
are we capable of being? Are we willing to let God make us radically pure, radically beautiful? That's the, that's the tension. That's the amazing thing about being God's holy people. They're always going to be a little weird, but that, but that weirdness should be beautiful and attractive to the world around them. There should be something compelling and intriguing about God's people to the world. Is that us? Not nearly as much as it ought to be, but do you want it to be? Keep coming back next week, and we're going to keep learning about what it means to live as God's holy people. Radically unique, yet radically pure, because we worship a God who's radically unique and radically pure and did everything necessary in order to make a way for us back in. Let's pray.